You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week we're hearing from lead pastor Gare Jones. Well, we are throughout 2023, I said at the start of the year that we're going to look various times at the Old Testament. And we began the year looking at the book of Ruth. And my heart behind this is for us to fall in love again with the Old Testament. When we do Alpha, many people tell me that they're struggling with the Old Testament, that this is one of the big issues of how do we read it? Is the God of the Old Testament the same as Jesus? It seems very odd and at times. And, and so throughout the year, we're going to take some little dives into the Old Testament. Not just looking at, say, the book of Ruth. When I did the book of Ruth, people said to me, yeah, that's an easy place to start. Do the hard stuff. And so we're going to look for a few weeks at one of the passages, one of the sections of the Old Testament, which many people are confused by. And we're going to see the beauty of it. We're going to see the inspiration behind it. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Sharp intakes of breath around the room. It's what is known as the creation narrative. And in the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at what God is doing by telling us this story in Genesis 1 through 3. And everyone agrees, those who are faithful to the Bible, those who love Jesus, those who want to hold the Bible up as our inspired truth revealed to us, that Genesis 1, 2, 3 does reveal the who and the why behind creation. There's a debate around whether it also tells us the when and the how. We all agree in the who and the why, but there's a debate around does it also tell us the when and the how. And there's two different groups who debate this. One group are the people who would say, I'm a scientist, I believe in science versus faith. Or, I, bl- I don't believe in, in the supernatural or I do believe in the supernatural. And it can become a conversation between those two groups of people, whether Genesis 1 through 3 is about science or faith, miracles or not miracles, or not. Well, that's not really my conversation and what we'll be looking at, because we do believe in miracles. We do believe in the supernatural. God can do anything he wants. And in fact, he does interrupt the creative order to do amazing things. That's what we see in the life of Jesus. So the question we'll be looking at the next three weeks isn't whether we believe in miracles or not. It's simply this. What does the Bible say Genesis 1 through 3 is all about? It's not a debate between science and faith. That is a good good conversation, but that's not really our starting point in looking at Genesis 1 through 3. We'll be looking at whether the Bible itself wants us to see this as not only who and why, does the Bible itself want us to see this as when and how? The when and how will be next week as I try and find a guest preacher rapidly. No, I'm only joking. Um, The when and how, we'll be looking at the when and how next week. Is 
the when and the how in the text, as we hold up the Bible as authoritative. But it's only authoritative in what it's trying to tell us. So is the when and how part of the authoritative message of Genesis 1 through 3? Are you following me? We can't overread it or underread it. We just have to read it the way the Bible wants to be read. So we'll be looking at next week, is the when and the how part of the authoritative narrative of Scripture? This week, we're going to dive into a bit of the who and why. As Genesis 1 through 3 is God's pattern of creation, telling us why he created us. One of the biggest questions I have in pastoral ministry is people coming to me going, yeah, I don't know what to do with my life. I just don't know why I'm here. Or I'm doing this kind of thing, or I'm kind of unfulfilled. What does God have for me? What is my purpose in life? And that is answered in Genesis 1 through 3. Now, before we get into Genesis 1 through 3, here's some resources for you to get ahead of next week's conversation around the when and the how question. So if you love to watch things, go to bibleproject.com. If you love to read, I've recently read a helpful book, Dan Kimball's How Not to Read the Bible. If you, if you like to listen to things, one of my daily uh, podcasts is Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast, and you can search in the um, index there or just scroll down, try and find something about Genesis. Or if you just love to do in-person stuff, then come on Alpha. And we have a lot of conversations and fun with these things on Alpha. The next one starts in September. But let's dig in, dig in to Genesis 1 through 3, looking at particularly the questions of who and why. Who made you and why on earth did he make you? <laughs> Beginning in Genesis 1 verses one. Verse one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We're gonna scoot around down to verse 26. Then God said, so we have the creative narrative which we'll look a bit at next week. Then verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening. Oops. And there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Now by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy 
because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Okay, down to verse seven. Then the Lord formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Down to 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. The who is very simple, God. God created you. The why is richly displayed in this passage. We see it to begin with in verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Image in the Hebrew is a particular word. It's actually a functional, vocational word, not a material word. We've often thought to be made in the image of God is fundamentally about characteristics that we have that are like God. So, morality or conscience. And that's true, but the deeper significance of the word, the fundamental meaning of the word, is not so much characteristic, but function. The image had a function. It's like a chef is about vocation. I've got a job to do. A barber, this is what I do. Same way, image is a doing word. It's this is what I do. I'm an image bearer. And it had a particular meaning and significance in the ancient Near East at the time of this authorship. Two primary uses which go to the same function. The first is it was a representative. It was a royal representative that a king would be a representative on earth of a divine being. So you had, for example, in Egypt, a pharaoh. Pharaoh was called Amon-Re, which Amon is image of Re, the god. Re. So the king was seen as God's representative on earth, acting on his behalf in his place, outworking the rule of some divine being. Interestingly, it was only the pharaoh, and so he would of use that power to subjugate others into slavery. There was another form of the use of the word image, which is more in the temple of the gods of the time. You'd build a temple, and we'll come on to next week the significance of that, given that lots of temples were known to be built around a motif of six days. And the temple would be built, and where the presence of God would, of your God would dwell, and the last step of that temple construction was to put an image in the temple, an idol or some kind of statue. And that image would be the representation of the God in the temple. And so the image would mediate the presence and the will of that divine being to the temple. And so when we hear that God made you to be his image, it's 
a highly significant function and purpose. That not one person is an image, a royal representative, but all of humanity have been placed in the temple of God's creation, the garden, that we may represent God, that we may actually outwork God's will, that we may outwork his love, his peace, his mercy, his justice to all of creation. We are, as N.T. Wright calls it, God's angled mirror to the world around us. That we are blessed to be a blessing. That when the world says, why is there so much suffering in the world? Well, the church is to be the, the people of healing to the brokenness around us. We are God's angled mirror. That is our function as image bearers. And that is why we have these words then throughout Genesis that explain what it means to be God's image bearers, this angled mirror. The first word we see is to rule, that you are to rule over. That's not to, to rule in the sense of just to have your way with and dominate, but it's God's rule. If you think of every Disney movie out there has a good king. And we look at that benevolent king because we see through their rule, they bring prosperity to the land. Because of evil in the heart of people, we generally think kings are going to bring destruction. <laughs> but in its initial design, we, we have an echo, don't we, of, oh man, we need a leader, we need a ruler, we need a boss who's going to come in and bring goodness. We are to rule, to bring order out of chaos, to bring health out of brokenness, to bring peace out of disruption. And then we go on, the same kind of words are used, to rule, well to rule means to be fruitful and multiply. I mean that obviously is biological to have kids and multiply, but it's more than that. It's to fill the earth with all of the things of the kingdom of God, to be fruitful in all we are as image bearers of God. Though you are in your place of work or your home to be fruitful, to, to bear the fruit of the kingdom of God, that others may enjoy that fruit around you. That's why then later on in verse 28, we have this word subdue. It feels, feels quite a dominating word, doesn't it? And yet subdue in Hebrew just simply means to take something that's wild and chaotic and disordered and to bring harmony, to bring cohesion, to bring something that will be fruitful, to take the raw materials of this world and to turn them into something that will be a blessing. That's why then in verse 15, Adam's told to work and keep the garden. Work means to work it in Hebrew, abad means to cultivate it, to draw out its potential, to keep it. It means actually to, to, to care for it, to guard it, not in a static way, but to see it fulfill its potential. So you see this very active vocation of humanity to draw out the raw materials that God has given us and produce something fruitful with it. That's why in chapter two, verse 10, we have this really interesting bit. We didn't read it out, but it's, it's where 
the author describes the rivers that are all going through the garden. It talks about all these rivers and water and trees, and then talks about, and also there's gold in there, there's resin in there, there's onyx in there. In other words, look, you've got, you've got water, you've got wood, you've got gold, you've got onyx, you've got resin. In other words, you've got all this raw material. And humanity should take this raw material and go, how can we cultivate and use this for good? How can we build community? How can we build infrastructures? How can we make food? How can we build homes? How can we, etc.? that we bring the fulfillment of all these raw materials to being in the world? One person called it the purpose of Humanity is in the image of the creator to go about the work of sub-creation. To take the things, the raw materials of what God has created and to create further things from them. I mean, just think of the examples. The examples of our vocation. This is not necessarily just because you're a Christian, you do these things, but it's in the very nature of humanity. Let's take the basic one of children. Is to take this raw material, <laughs> to take these little kids, and we've just welcomed some amazing new children on our balcony. It's wonderful to see. But they're raw material, right? They don't know how to do much. In fact, they need, we need to care for them, take care of them, keep them, and rule and subdue them in a way. It's called parenting that brings out their potential, brings out their fullness, brings out who they are. It's why parenting is one of the most, being a, a full-time mum or dad is one of the most honorable vocations on the planet that we can actually cultivate and rule and subdue in a way that brings life. But it's not just children, it's also any vocation can participate in this image-bearing role. One of my friends was an architect. I mean, he still is my friend and still is an architect. But um, and he showed me this book called Sidewalks in the Kingdom. Anybody read Sidewalks in the Kingdom? And it was this book about architecture done for the glory of God. I never thought architecture could be done for the glory of God. I knew it could be done for evil because I drive down Lincoln Boulevard every day. Hidden behind the chaos are some amazing spots, by the way, on Lincoln Boulevard. But, it, but architecture can be done for the glory of God, that we are to take the raw materials of brick, electricity, nails, and put them all together in a way that designs communities, designs homes, designs towns that actually can either create community, interdependence, or it can separate us into our silos and create loneliness and autonomy. It's amazing how anything we do can be done for the glory of God in our created mandate to bring the kingdom of God to bear in the world. To take the raw materials and make something stunning and beautiful out of it. I was reminded again this week, someone doing that incredibly well, um, takes this little tiny thing and turns it into something magical. I'm talking, of course, of coffee beans, right? 
And uh, the process of taking the coffee bean and turning it into this amazing filter brew that I had this week on Wednesday morning from Hooked Coffee in Venice, if you've been there. I had to go back and say, mate, that was probably the best cup of coffee I've ever had. Then he went into explaining all that had happened to get that coffee bean into that little jar and for me to consume it. But this is the human vocation. It's to take the raw materials and to build them into something beautiful. It could be a hedge fund manager. It could be a lawyer. It could be a dentist. It could be a financier. It could be a psychologist, a therapist. What you're doing is you're entering into chaos. You're entering into the wild west of creation. And you're let me bring order. Let me bring goodness. And as you start to see in the brokenness of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, you could go in one or two directions in any vocation. But that is the heart of who we are. The heart of your vocation in this world is to be a sub-creator, a steward, to care and keep that area of land, that area of your business, that area of your neighborhood, the, the people around you, to bring the kingdom of God to bear. It's funny how in Genesis chapter one and two, we have two examples of this happening to help us. The first is an example from God. We see in Genesis one through three, it starts with the earth is formless and empty. That God says, look, I'll show you what it means to bring life. So I'm going to model this. He said, I'm going to take this raw material of earth, formless and empty, and I'm going to start doing things with it to bring life. It was a wasteland. But God created then out of it, he created that to begin with, but then he said, look, this is kind of what it may feel in your life. You go into your work environment and it's formless and empty. That you, your marriage just begins formless and empty. There's nothing there except you're together, but now you build a marriage. One of life and love. You go into your legal practice and go, great, I'm going to actually, there's, there's not much here. Or you go into an existing practice and go, it's formless and empty. And I'm going to cultivate mercy, justice, peace out of the raw materials of contracts and trial courts. We then see a human example of this. We see God saying to Adam, look, I'm gonna give you an example, I'm gonna write it down so people can see what it means. And so he created the raw materials of animals, but he didn't do the full thing. He didn't give them names. He said, look, you are my image bearers. Come on, I'm giving you the raw materials, but you need to come into your role and finish the job and cultivate it further. So he said, look, here's a little animal. What, what, what are you going to call it? So Adam looked at the animals, had to come up with names. You kind of look like a Labrador. I don't know where that came from, but Labrador. <laughs> you kind of look like a giraffe. I don't know where that came from. You look like kind of, you know, an on, on a yose. Maybe you got tied at the end and just went, oh, bee. That's fine. <laughs> Fly. <laughs> I ran out of energy. Do you see the dignity of humanity? This is the created dignity which separates humanity from the rest of the creation is not so much that we've given characteristics like God, but we've been given a function that is to co-rule this world for God's glory and his goodness. 
In that case, when we look at Genesis 1 through 2, we don't see Eden as a finished product, but the beginnings of a project. We often, I don't know, I grew up thinking Eden was this idyllic kind of parkland, everything was perfect. That you just basically just sat down and went, this is awesome, not much to do. Have a cocktail and relax, I don't know. But that's not the essence of what we see in Genesis 1 through 2. It's kind of this perfect wilderness. Right, it's this, this amazing land, but it's kind of unkempt. It's kind of disorganized, but not in an imperfect way, but it just it's waiting for someone to come in and bring it to life. This is the human project. To be his co-creators. It's what scholars call the cultural mandate. I got a couple of long quotes, forgive me, but they're just too good. Nancy Pearcey says this, the lesson of the cultural mandate is that our sense of fulfillment depends on engaging in creative, constructive work. The ideal human existence is not eternal leisure or an endless vacation or even a monastic retreat into prayer and meditation, but creative effort expended for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Don't you love that? I get so bored thinking that eternity is just going to be just chill out time. (laughs) Our calling is not just to go to heaven, but to cultivate the earth, not just to save souls, but to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, we we participate in the work of God himself. The echoes of this, of course, are in Jesus' prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And yet we've subtly changed that with Jesus rescue us out of this world to get to heaven. This is our home. This is God's world. And we are his image bearers in it to bring justice, peace, love, salvation, renewal, wherever he's placed us. Another another quote, just because they're better than my preaching. Here we go, Dr. Stephen Graves. Whenever people produce useful goods, creative art that inspires, teach the young, protect the vulnerable, lead others in government or private organizations, engage in selling or banking or investing, or perform any number of other kinds of labor that produce order and value in human culture, they are obeying God's command to get busy making something out of this world I've created for you. Amen. The dignity of your vocation. This is the beautiful picture of what God has created for us to do. That means, of course, there is no sacred secular divide in the work of God's people. All of work is holy. Maybe you grew up with the old heresy that The real work of the kingdom is to be a preacher or a pastor. But of course, preachers and pastors were not in Genesis 1 and 2. The real holy work is the full seven days of what we're called to do 
as co-creators in the world around us. Whether you're a teacher, a dentist, a hairstylist, a cashier, a parent. Work is our created design. Have you ever realized that is why Jesus spent more time as a carpenter than a preacher? It wasn't because he thought to himself, I'm not ready for ministry. <laughs> Got a few things to iron out first. You know, you know what I mean? The dignity of Jesus going, I'm gonna model what it means to be human in the image of God. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna roll up my sleeves and get creative. I'm gonna build some tables. Someone said to me once, why did Jesus come back then and not today? And I said to them, well, a terrible answer to that is, if he'd be here today, he'd build tables, we'd probably preserve them and put them in museums. Thankfully, there's no image of Jesus or tables that are in museums because he was back in the first century. Anyway, that's a little weird aside. <laughs> but there's, all of work is holy. All of work is holy. I used to be in brand management. I used to go into work and pray, Lord, let my work as brand management, helping people discover the amazing benefits of Tide laundry detergent. <laughs> Help me do this for the glory of God. Right? You laugh. <laughs> Clean clothes matter. No, in all seriousness, I would go, oh, there, I'm gonna go on the side here, but I do, I remember, I remember going into work so many times and going, God, this, for many people, this seems insignificant. This seems like sub-important to um, kind of rescuing people from trafficking. Clean water. There was this, you know, there used to be a hierarchy of pastors had the most important job than the rest of us. That's way gone now. What it is, is social justice jobs are better than everyone else's jobs, right? I want to do something meaningful in my life, therefore I don't want to be a banker, I want to rescue people from this or that, right? Have you heard that? Or do you feel that? And I think that, is, that is without diminishing the importance and the urgency of some of these things, without diminishing that and the horror that we need to rescue people from certain things, without diminishing that, I also want to go, but all of life is sacred. All of work is holy when done for the glory of God. And when I'm so proud of people, I've met someone recently who went into the banking system and said, I want to be part of the banking system. I want to be influential in this, in this area that I can actually turn the banking system, not just, not just for caring for our shareholders, whatever it is, but I want to actually see the banking system be used for the glory of God. Amen. All of life is holy. Secondly, all of our work then is a crucial part of the redemptive renewal mandate in Jesus Christ. We've got systemic evil in the world. We've got so much of this world and the evil within it is top down from authority, from, from institution. And to get into those institutions and to help, not through coercive power, but by influence and love and grace, part of our work is part of the renewal mandate. We think our renewal mandate, what Jesus, the great commission, is just evangelism and discipleship. Most change in our culture will come through people in the workplace. Transformed people transforming their work environments. 
And then finally, Genesis tells us that your work is not only holy, it's not only part of God's redemption of the whole world, but it's also designed to operate in a very unique way. See, I live with the example of, God, if work is so good for me, why is work sometimes so destructive for me? And again, the answer is back in Genesis chapter one and two. On the seventh day, we read that God rested. It's not because he was tired. It's because he's built in rest as part of our rhythm of work. Now, there's two reasons why. First of all, we need that Sabbath rest. And for more information on that, go to all John Mark's teachings on Sabbath, right? (laughs) But there's also, Jesus talks about a spiritual rest. What Jesus talks about, and I gotta just shortcut it because we're running out of time. Jesus says, look, I will bring a Sabbath rest to your soul. That will mean work will be healthy, not destructive for you. In other words, you can either find your value and significance and meaning in your work or in me. And if you find a significance, value, or meaning in work, work will destroy you. But if you find a significant value and meaning in me, then work will bring life. Right? I remember seeing that film Rocky. Remember Rocky, the first Rocky? He's like driven so much. And then his wife, Adrian, comes like, Rocky, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Like you're driving yourself to death. I remember this quote. I wrote it down. It said this. um, Let me find it. It's so good. He said, look, if I can go the distance, I will then know that I'm not a bum. You see, in other words, he's going, I need to know my value, I'm significant, I have meaning. The only way I know how to do that is by going the distance in the ring. My work will validate me. But she's going, dude, your work is destroying you because you're relying on your work to validate you. And here's my two mistakes. This may not be yours, but my two mistakes, when I've turned to work to validate me, I end up doing a job that I hate because I think other people will find it significant even though I hate it. And then secondly, I'm driven to succeed because I need other people to see I'm successful in it to find my own significance and value. So I'm at the age of 25. I found myself in a job I hated but other people valued. I was a lawyer. Fairly good at it. Hated it. But I knew that if I could become a partner in a law firm, I knew then I would not be a bum. But I hated it. And then I'm driving myself every day, doing 80-hour weeks in corporate finance in the city of London. Help, I mean, good, good work for those who like it, but I was driving myself because I needed to prove myself. So I was miserable and driven. And when you're miserable and driven by work, you basically become miserable and driven around your family and friends. And not only do you destroy yourself, you destroy them. God rescued me. I found my rest in Jesus again, where my significance is what he thinks about me. My value is who he says that I am. 
My meaning is his vocation he's put into me. And so I woke up one day and I thought, well, with this Sabbath rest, I don't need a work to prove myself. I don't need work to find identity. I don't need work to find significance. I can overflow work for his glory. Oh my gosh, well, who has he made me to be? And I found a whole new start in life. I went back, changed career completely, went down the financial rung, but I was so much more filled with joy and passion and rest. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Who has God called you to be? Do you realize your significance in his kingdom? But it begins, and you find it when you abide in him and allow him to set you free from the expectations of others, for the voice of others, for the standards of what is success or not, whether it be your body or your work that you can be free to live into Genesis chapter one and two, to be the image bearers of God wherever he's placed you. Let's stand together. Let's just close our eyes. The worship team are gonna come up. Out of our prayer team to kind of Avengers assemble at the front here. (laughs) (sighs) Jesus, I thank you, you rescued me from finding my significance and value out of work and set me free to love work again, to overflow the creativity you've put in my heart uniquely through me and to live into this beauty and divine creative purpose of sub-creation. I thank you for everyone here that this is the calling you have for each and every one of us. Just in your heart now, you may want to say something to Jesus. Just with your eyes closed. So Jesus, as we worship you, Use who we are to bring glory to your name. In finance, in the home, in the school, in the college, in the office, in the studio. I'm your image bearer. Being fruitful, cultivating. Caring, subduing, ruling for your glory and the good of our world. Let's worship together. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.